The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to uh, perhaps gain a little bit more insight into exactly what is the reasoning and the purposes behind alchemy and the alchemists, and what exactly uh, you know they are talking about um, in some of these treatises that we we go over at times here. And this is kind of an, uh, a review and uh, somewhat of an introduction for those new to the topic as to uh, what alchemy is and what the intentions are behind them and uh, basically, you know, uh, how these folks who consider themselves the modern-day alchemists, uh, you know, the points of view that they have coming at this stuff. And uh, uh, we're going to actually go through tonight and we're going to read the preface of an old dusty book that was found in the back of the Harvard College Library uh, titled Alchemy and the Alchemists by R Dr. Ruben Swinburn Clymer. Uh, and this book was published in 1907 by the philosophical publishing company Allentown, Pennsylvania. And this book is a book that belongs to one of the orders of the secret societies and this one uh, would be, you know, one of the, the Rosicrucian Brotherhoods uh, where this book belonged to. Now, back in, uh, you know, times past here, uh, up until just within the past, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 years or so, you wouldn't be able to get your hands on a book like this unless you were uh, a member of one of these orders. So, you know, that being the case, <clears throat> some of these things were really hard to come by before the advent of the Internet, okay? But now... Uh, a lot of this stuff is out there in the public, and it's it's free to peruse for just about anybody who could uh, find a, a digital file of it or, or just about any other type of a copy of it. These things are out there to see. And uh, actually what we're going to uh, go through tonight here in this book is just the preface. Uh, and the preface is written by a gentleman named F. Oscar Biberstein. Uh, so, you know, we're just going to read through that part, and I'm going to give you some of my my own casual takes on things, like I always often do here with this, and uh, we'll go from there. But this book, the full title of it, for anybody who'd be interested in reading it, and I always highly recommend read it, everything you could find by Dr. Ruben Swinburne Clymer. He was a highly intelligent man, and uh, he had a really firm grasp of a lot of this stuff. Now, I, I personally think... His intentions were good, but I think in just like everybody else that gets involved with these uh, secret brotherhoods and stuff, uh, I, I think they, you know, when it comes down to it, they, they're misled in a lot of ways. Uh, but that's not to say to discredit uh, the information and stuff in these type of books, because you can find a lot of important truths uh, in a lot of these writings. Uh, so I always urge people, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater with a lot of this stuff. 
Uh, so it's important to, to read and understand their points of view on these things, but also understand that uh, there's always just a little bit in there that's uh, there to uh, kind of poison the, the well a little bit. So, you know, we, we must be cautious when we read these things and then, you know, also understand that a lot of it's encoded language. So the plain meaning is not always there. And unless you're initiated into the order and you've reached a certain level of the degree system within these orders, you might not pick up on what they're putting down, really, with a lot of this stuff. And, and this was done this way, you know, for a lot of different reasons through the years. And when you actually do a broad study of alchemy, you find that uh, this was done in the early days of some of these alchemists, uh, back in the, the age of... Uh, uh, when the church really took off and uh, was, you know, the major law of the land in those days, they uh, they would call some of these ideas heresy and different things like that. So a lot of these people that were trying to protect this information came up with a, a sort of hidden language uh, to disguise the things they were talking about so as not to uh, draw unnecessary attention to their quote-unquote secret brotherhood or the secret order they belonged to. Uh, and through time, a lot of these ideas got twisted and developed into something much different than what the original intention was. And I do think there are a lot of people that get involved with this stuff that have good intentions. And I don't think, uh, you know, the gentleman that wrote this book was any different. I think he had good intentions. He largely believed he was doing good things and, uh, you know, really firmly believed and thought uh, that this was accurate information he was giving and by and large a lot of it i would suspect is accurate information uh, but like i said you always have to be cautious with these things because uh, all it takes is you know just a little bit of a misteaching here and there uh, by one or two different uh, people uh, throughout the whole series of, of the transition between uh, the generations with these things in order for th something to become distorted and be something other than what the original intention was. But I think um, in the preface to this book that we're going to read by this F. Oscar Biberstein, I, I think a lot of this touches on what the original intent of alchemy and the alchemists is. And uh, much of that is good, right? So uh, we could see, you know, the original intentions for a lot of this stuff. Uh, I believe it was largely intended for good uses and good purposes, but the teachings through the years have become twisted and distorted through some of these secret uh, society groups that pass them forward. And as such, you know, certain people in positions of power within these different orders uh, get a hold of some of this information and decide to use it for their own greedy gains and keep it from the masses. So that's, you know, part and parcel of how much of this stuff has gone down through the years. Uh, but the science, the old ancient science of alchemy itself, was not intended to be a bad thing. And that's where people kind of get misconstrued with a lot of this, because uh, uh, largely in uh, the broader sense today, through different uh, organized churches and religions and stuff like this, anything like this that... Uh, falls under this umbrella of what they would call, like, quote-unquote, witchcraft or the occult or, you know, all these different names they come up with for it. 
it falls under this taboo type topic for you to discuss or even even look at but uh, in this day and age especially it's important to understand these things because what you need to understand is that even if you don't believe in any of these concepts or act on these concepts there are people in this world in positions of power that most certainly do believe and act upon these things and the things that they do to act upon these things will affect all of us so it's important to understand why they do the things they do and and this gets right to the the heart of the matter all of this kind of stuff understanding having a basic understanding of what alchemy really is because we haven't been taught the truth in our school systems about what alchemy is generally they teach you in the school system that alchemy is a type of backwards pseudoscience that the primitive peoples uh, used and you know it largely had to do with trying to change lead into gold and this kind of thing and and create wealth out of nothing and it was a precursor of chemistry but it was all backwards and confused right and that couldn't be further from the truth because that's not what it's about at all so uh, we're gonna read through this preface here <coughs> and uh, We'll see exactly what is said here as to what the nature or what the original nature and intention of alchemy was. So let's read right here in the preface. We'll start right now. And I'm going to read through all of this. And I may take a pause here and there just to kind of add my own thoughts to it uh, as I usually do. But uh, let's, let's get right into it. So, <clears throat> the preface. May the children of darkness become children of light. The occult sciences reveal to man the mysteries of his nature, the secrets of his organization, the means by which he may attain happiness and perfection, in short, the end of his destiny. This was the secret of the Egyptian initiations. It is also the hidden teaching in all sacred writings and is the basis of all religions. The Old Testament, as well as the New, reveals the same mysteries. But how many are able to understand the inner, secret, sacred meaning? Only he who thoroughly understands alchemy can understand the Bible, and he only who can read the jargon of the old masters or alchemists can understand the secret of ancient and modern initiations, Egyptian or Masonic. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. So, the author of the preface here is explaining a couple basic things here, all right? So he's teaching uh, that uh, much of what we call alchemy uh, was largely what the Egyptians in their religious structure were interested in and what they were following. And uh, he talks about the Egyptian initiations. And this ties back to the ancient mystery schools okay, of antiquity. And this is where all of our modern secret societies were born, back in these ancient mystery schools. So they, they taught many of these same different traditions and things within all these different mystery schools, just with a different flavor, depending upon what uh, mythological archetypes they were referencing. Uh, but it's all kind of the same meanings to a lot of these things, and a lot of the same exact teachings. Then uh, the author also mentions here that uh, only by having an understanding, a basic understanding of alchemy, can you understand the Bible, right? And I found this to be a true thing. Uh, you, you could get so much more meaning out of certain things within the Bible by understanding what they're talking about here. And he, he alludes to here what he calls the jargon of the old masters or the alchemists. And this is what's largely referred to today as twilight language. 
or something akin to that. It's also known in Freemasonry as the green language, uh, sometimes referred to as the language of the birds. Um, it's also known by some as phonetic Kabbalah, and this is a different type of Kabbalah uh, than what you've been taught to think. Uh, this is different, and this, this goes back to uh, etymology and word origins and the different uh, functions of the spoken word, of, of speech. Uh, so there's a lot of ideas hung up in this. But uh, anyway, so he's talking about uh, only uh, those that could read the jargon of the old masters or alchemists can understand the secret of ancient and modern initiations, Egyptian or Masonic. Uh, so once again, it falls down to the idea of initiation. And this was always a very important concept within all the secret society groups. Okay, initiation. It's a rite of passage of sorts for some folks. But uh, I think, in particular, I don't think the ancient alchemists were as much concerned with quote-unquote initiation as much as the secret society groups or the mystery school organizations themselves were interested in initiation, right? I think that it's it largely became one of these precepts um, of a concept of uh, the beginnings of, of the learning of wisdom in the, this alchemical sense that kind of got hijacked by the, the groups, the organizations, the secret schools, the mystery schools, right? The secret society groups. They've hijacked this thing and taken control of it, and only they then were able to determine who is worthy of learning the secrets. So they, they took it and turned it into an initiatory rite. And this was done all the way back in ancient Egypt and long before that, too, before uh, written records have been around. So... Um, you know, th this goes back as far as civilization itself. Anyway, let's not get too hung up on that point. Let's continue reading on. <clears throat> I am fully aware that this claim will be ridiculed, but those who see only with their physical eyes are almost blind. The old mysteries were dual in their object. That is to say, the wise teachers had two purposes in view, or as we might say, a double doctrine. And I'm going to pause there, folks. This double doctrine idea is very important, and it's foundational to many of the things that the secret society groups teach. They teach double doctrine, okay, and that there's an underlying meaning beneath the exterior text of what they're teaching. All right, it's it's highly symbolic and it's highly allegorical in a lot of ways. Uh, so only if you understand the symbols being invoked. Can you maybe pick up on the, the secret doctrine underneath and see that that's another thing that's heavily referred to in the secret society groups is the secret doctrine. And that's part of the double doctrine uh, because they explain things in in two different ways. They, they have an exoteric text, right, which tells the surface tale of what they're talking about. And then there's an esoteric connotation to it where there's a hidden meaning underneath. And, and that's a lot of how they do things. Uh, but let's not get hung up on that point. Like I said, this will be, uh, for many of you who've been following my work for a long time, this is uh, largely a review, but uh, I'm doing this because I'm, I'm kind of expecting uh, to have some new listeners here who might be just getting interested in something like this. So uh, that's why I, I feel the need to uh, review and spend the time to really lay out some of these ideas uh, because we're all at a different spot in our lives and a different area of uh, learning within some of these different things. So that's why it's important to lay that out. But let's get back to the reading here. 
The first idea was to draw man from his state of barbarity and to civilize him and to take civilized man and teach him how to become perfect. In other words, to lead man, who was believed to be lost or fallen, back to his first nature. According to these teachers, man must be regenerated and this can only be accomplished through initiation. And I'm going to pause there, folks. And once again, you see how they draw on the idea of initiation. Now, in my view, this is not coming from the original alchemical teachings, right? The whole concept of initiation being so important here. This is coming from the secret society groups, the secret schools, uh, because it gives them some type of special purpose, so to say. Now, you don't need to be initiated into one of these orders to learn these things. Not anymore. There was a time you had to be because the, they kept the information hidden, right? You, you couldn't obtain the information outside of going to one of these secret orders. Well, now it's out there in the public domain for anybody to find that wants it now, right? So now you could pick up one of these, all of these different books and study and maybe learn a little bit about uh, the symbols and stuff they're talking about and the, the symbolic language they use. And it takes time. It's very time-consuming uh, to learn this. And it's very time-consuming to uh, begin to see what it is, the, the nuance of what they're talking about. But uh, if you spend the time and have the desire to learn about this, you could learn anything you want now. Uh, so you don't need to go through one of these secret society groups or secret brotherhoods or anything of that sort and, and take their initiation ritual uh, and do the, the different things that they want you to do. And many of them require actually taking blood oaths swearing that you won't uh, violate any of the, the the trust or anything of the secret society group you join. Uh, the Freemasons are, are well known for this. You take blood oaths. You, you swear a blood oath that, uh, you know, you'll, they, they, can, they can kill you if you betray the order in some way, if you betray or give up the secrets of the order to somebody outside the order, right? Uh, so that's exactly what they teach in a lot of these different uh, fraternities. Uh, and that's what they call themselves, the fraternal brotherhoods, uh, or, you know, otherwise known as secret societies. But uh, you don't learn that till you get to the higher levels of initiation, mostly. But uh, every single level, uh, even like the first degree of Freemasonry, you take a blood oath. You swear a blood oath. And people, uh, you know, don't take this stuff seriously. They say it's symbolic and, oh, it's all just, it's all just symbolic. It's tradition. It's this kind of thing. And it doesn't mean anything. Oh, it's got very, very, very real meaning, folks. So that's why I, I say you don't need to join one of these organizations to learn about this stuff. Not anymore. And uh, the whole point is I, I don't think that was part of the original alchemical doctrine or the teachings, initiation. I don't think that was part of it at all. I think this was added later uh, by the secret society groups to maintain their power and control over these quote-unquote secrets, right? So that they could have some type of power over the public at large. Uh, so, you know, that, that's just my viewpoint, and I reserve the right to be totally wrong about that, but uh, I don't think initiation is really um, what it's cracked up to be, how these people refer to it. Uh, it's a very different thing than actually beginning uh, to, to learn the ways of wisdom with this stuff. So, let, let's read on, though. The second object was to discover the means by which matter could be raised 
to its first nature, which was also believed to be lost. Gold was the symbol of the first matter, as it was thought that gold was to matter that which the ether of the eighth, eight heavens was to the souls, and the seven metals, which were known then, were each named after one of the seven planets and formed the ladder of material purification. This, Thus the initiation had two divisions. In the first division, only the propensities were purified, the man only was put through the crucible. This was a spiritual alchemy, a human initiation, and I'm going to pause there. Uh, so by and large, what this is all about, alchemy is about uh, man perfecting himself, right? Uh, that's that's what they were talking about here. It wasn't ever about turning lead to gold, okay? Not in that sense. And that's where people kind of miss the point here. Uh, before man could perform any of these, you know, supernatural alchemical feats here in the material world or the real world, well, first he had to go through the spiritual transmutation, right? The, the, the spiritual alchemy. He had to do the work for that. He had to transform himself, his mind, his personality within. He had to uh, develop his spirit uh, to a certain sense uh, with many of these ideas in mind. And a lot of it's allegorical and represents other things. So, you know, we'll see as we read on here. But uh, at any rate, let's see what else it says here. Okay, where do we leave off? The second initiation led up to the mysterious operations of nature and was an initiation of the body. In the one we find the search for the cornerstone of the philosophic temple and with ingenious symbol taught the initiate that all humanity should and could be reunited into one great fold in one faith, one hope, and the same great love. And I'm going to pause there. One world order, right? A new world order. Is that what they're talking about here? One great fold, one faith, one hope, and the same great love. And then if you throw in, uh, you know, a one world currency and a one world religion and, you know, all of this stuff, uh, you have a new world order, don't you? The same thing that uh, all the political pundits have been talking about for decades now. So, and actually centuries really when it goes back to it. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Let's, let's continue on here. In the second division, the candidate was taught to search for that which led humanity back to the golden age, the philosopher's stone and the elixir which prolongs life. The one served as a veil of nature, as it does this day, to this day. Let me read that again. <coughs> Excuse me while I clear my throat. <coughs> the one served as a veil of nature, as it does this day. It would be easy to convince the true student of the truth of this, but the present work on alchemy and the alchemists is in itself so clear an exposition of the subject that it would be out of place in this introduction. Alchemy is analogous with the ancient initiations. It is necessary that the philosopher should have an acquaintance with the true germ of nature before commencing his work. When the alchemists speak of their gold and silver, symbolized in the lodges of masonry as the sun and the moon, from which they extract their first matter, they do not mean the common gold and silver, because these are dead, but the gold and silver of the philosophers are full of life. going to pause there, folks. 
So what they're talking about when they're speaking of gold and silver or they're referencing the sun and the moon or symbolizing the sun and the moon is something totally different than what the external meaning of it would be. And this is where people got lost with the whole idea of alchemy. They're really thinking that they're talking about changing lead into gold, right? Like real physical a bar of lead turning it into a bar of gold. That's not what it's talking about. It's, it's an alchemical transmutation. It's an allegory for something else. And it has everything to do with a spiritual state, okay? It, it has to do with the spiritual world, not the physical. So they're referencing a spiritual ideal, okay? Not a physical thing. And, and that is where people get lost with this. So uh, let's continue on. The object of all this philosophy and all initiations is to obtain the knowledge, or the art, how to make perfect that which nature has left imperfect in the humankind, and to find the treasury of true morality. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Now, a lot of these secret society groups say this kind of thing. Uh, it's the art of how to make perfect that which nature has left imperfect. Well, here's the little key. Nature hasn't left anything imperfect. Nature is perfectly balanced when left to do what nature does. Okay, There's no lie found in nature. When you look at nature, it was perfectly designed. And that's the whole point here. Designed. Okay, It was intelligently and perfectly designed. There's no imperfection in it. Uh, but what they're talking about here is man being created in the image of God has the ability to affect... Uh, these natural things that the, the author here is calling imperfect, but isn't really imperfect. But what man can do is exalt this thing. Okay, it's a little different of a, a nuance and definition. It's not necessarily imperfect, but it's also not exalted. So man can exalt this, you know, what they're calling an imperfect thing and make it greater. Because God gave us the, the power to do this because we're created in his image. And, you know, that's that's one of the, the truths around here that people miss out on all the time is man was created special, okay? We are special compared to the rest of the natural order here because we are created in the image of God. Uh, so that being the case, we're different than the animals. We're different than the plants. We're different than the minerals. We're different from all these other things. And we have a uh, type of power that most people are unaware of because of this. Uh, so, you know, there are a few people at the top of the power structure here in this world that are fully aware of this type of an idea, right? And they largely try to keep the people ignorant of the fact that they have some power to do things in this place. So, you know, that's, that's one of the misconceptions that's kind of been uh, twisted by these secret society groups through the years. Uh, but he's also talking here about finding the treasury of true morality, Okay, so like I said, a lot of this I think harkens back to some of the original intent of alchemy, but uh, how it's been twisted and modified through the years by these secret society groups and brought forward, many things have been lost in transit here, and many things have been distorted from what they once were, and many of these things have been used and manipulated by people in places of power to either garner more power for themselves or control for themselves, or to use it for their own greedy gains, so to say, uh, and not for the good of society at large. So, you know, uh, let's not uh, dwell too long on that idea because we have a lot more reading to do. Let's get back to it.
far back, when man first commenced to reflect on himself, he saw that, although knowing and approving the good, yet he mostly committed evil. And he found that the power of his desires was greater by far than that of reason. He only enjoyed partly, or in appearance only, his free will. It became clear to him that if he would acquire the liberty of choosing and determining his actions throughout his life, he must subdue the passions which controlled his very being. From thence sprang the first idea of the sage, to be a free man and master of himself, and every institution and every philosophy which tends or claims to make masters and adepts must teach how to acquire this liberty and this kingdom. And I'm going to pause there, folks. And once again, I, I think this what he says here reinforces the idea that I spoke of earlier when I said uh, the idea of initiation was born out of these secret society groups. Okay, this wasn't truly part of uh, uh, what the one of the important first steps in in the alchemical process is for these people or for anybody for that matter. See, let's read that again because it says. From thence sprang the first idea of the sage, to be a free man and master of himself. See, so you could be a free man and master of yourself. You could be a, an archetypal sage, so to say, and learn these things just out of experience, right? It's born out of experience and study and observation, knowing, uh, learning about how the natural world operates learning about the creator of this place and these two things are extremely important and neither one could be neglected so anybody that uh, shies away from the bible or from any type of religious study per se but only pursues that which could be found in the natural order so this would include uh, you know the the types of uh, belief systems and groups that we would call pagans or uh uh, you know, a lot of Christians, or the early Christian church referred to them as heathen cultures, these type things that kind of worshipped the natural world uh, or, you know, studied the natural world as the uh, archetypal representation of God. They're, they're kind of missing the point a little bit because it's it's got to work in both realms here. The natural world, we need to study and understand that and how that operates, and that as a reflection of the character of God or the creator and we also have to study the spiritual side of things and understand certain truths that have been written down and, and passed down through uh, various times and cultures and generations and things to understand the nature of the creator of this place and uh, you know many of these ideas have been brought to us uh, through the ancient Greek philosophers and many other people and through the Holy Bible okay and uh, through um, many different of the prophets in the Bible and uh, through the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. He, um, you know, laid down uh, some different ideas for us to understand and he was the actual personification of God, the creator, here on earth. So uh, we could understand a bit about his character and his nature and uh, who he was and how he was actually something separate from nature and also not just separate from nature but also uh, attached to nature so to say uh, synonymous with nature it's it's two sides of of the character here uh, so to say 
it's a, it's a difficult thing to describe, but we need to have the understanding of both the spiritual aspect of things and study the things of the Word of God, as well as look at the natural wor- world and how the natural order works in order to discern truth, right? So these were two different streams of uh, knowledge that we've been given the opportunity to study here in this place and learn about. And only when we study them together concurrently can we have a true understanding of how and why things happen in this world how they do. Anyway, let's get back to the reading, though. The greatest of all victories is the victory one gains, gains over one's self. Alchemy, like the sacred art had its origin and home in Egypt and was closely associated with the religious rites. The Egyptian priests were initiated into the mysteries of the divine art. Like its predecessors, alchemy postulated an orderly universe, but alchemy was richer in fantastic details, more picturesquely embroidered, more prodigal of strange fancies than the sacred art of Egypt. The alchemist constructed his ordered scheme of nature on the basis of the supposed universality of life. The alchemist sees life in everything, and that life is threefold. He recognizes the manifestation of life in the form or body of a thing, in its soul, and in its spirit. Things might differ materially in appearance, in size, taste, smell, and other outward properties, and yet, according to the alchemists, be intimately related because they were produced from the same principles and were animated by the same soul. On the other hand, things might resemble one another closely in their appearances outwardly and still different in their essential qualities, because according to alchemy, they were formed from different elements and in their spiritual properties were different. The transformations of one thing into another could, according to alchemy, only be affected by spiritual means acting on the spirit of the thing, because the true transmutation consisted essentially in raising the substance to the highest perfection whereof it is capable. And I'm going to pause there. So what the author here is saying uh, essentially is that uh, the only true transmutations or transformations that could be made need to affect the spiritual aspect of the thing first okay or the person see and this this falls back on a whole different idea of cosmology uh, than what we recognize in today's uh, scientific literature Uh, so there's a spiritual realm around us and manifestation springs forth from the spiritual into the material here Uh, so the transformation needs to take place in the spiritual realm first before it could manifest in the physical here. And that's essentially uh, what's being said here. Okay, and this is where a lot of people will miss the ball on a lot of these different ideas and think uh, a lot of this stuff is total nonsense and poppycock and everything else. Uh, But regardless of what you think of it, keep in mind there's people in positions of power in this world that very much understand and believe this stuff and act upon it. And the things they do to act upon it will affect you. So, uh... It's important to understand, okay? And a lot of this involves thinking outside the box or thinking in ways we haven't been taught to before, uh, largely because, you know, we haven't been taught to think that way because they've taken a lot of these ideas out of our modern education system and out of our modern culture. So a lot of these ideas are actually derived from very ancient sources and mankind better understood these things 
back when, but uh, now in our modern age, we've been taught to think of these things as being backward or, you know, superstitious and, and that kind of thing, and uh, to, to dismiss it outright. So that's a hard kind of mentality to get around a lot of times because we've been so indoctrinated through our lifetimes uh, with our school system and with what they call our modern quote-unquote science all the ideas that they bring along with that, that they claim are superior than these older ways of thinking. But, uh, you know, you've got to understand that uh, not everything is empirically measurable or observable in the scientific method framework of things. All these things are subjective, okay? A lot of these things are subjective. You cannot objectively measure them through scientific method. Uh, and this, this falls into the category of spiritual things, okay? Or phenomena that can't be explained by our modern quote-unquote science uh, through the methods that it uses. So these things are subjective, and you can't measure the subjective objectively. Uh, so that being the case, it doesn't disc discredit it. It just means you can't objectively measure it in a way because it's a subjective thing. So it's only experiential, understand? So that's a huge huge thing, a huge facet of our lives that they've taken out of uh, fact-finding is experience. These things are experiential, and everybody experiences them at a different rate or in a different way, and that's one of the keys to understanding the alchemical process or alchemy, is it's different. The path unfolds differently for each individual, so that's the thing. So even that even in of itself, that's a truth in and of itself. And even that contradicts the idea of this initiation process that these secret society groups use. Okay? Because this is trying to, uh, trying to wrangle the experiential side of this into uh, a one uniform way. And it doesn't work like that. Never has. And that's not the nature of how philosophy works or how the whole alchemical process works. The path is different for each individual. So, once again, like like I said, there, there's some things, there's truths that have been brought forward through a lot of these different society, secret society groups and stuff like that. But there's also a lot of perversion of the original concepts that's gone on. And that is part and parcel of one of them, in my view. Anyway, let's, let's read on, though. Dr. Clymer has admirably succeeded in the present work on alchemy and the alchemists to make perfectly clear the vague and mystic language of the old masters, and he makes the assertion that man himself is the subject of the alchemist. But when we say man, we mean man in his threefold nature, spirit, soul, and body, three in one. Man is the epitome of the universe and is called the microcosm. Man is the climax and culmination of forces which for ages have been seeking harmonious expression. How to use his forces and express them harmoniously is the secret of this philosophy and is the pearl of great price as called by the alchemists. A deep and earnest study and a steadfast purpose on the part of the neophyte to live the life taught by our teachers will in due time open his vision to the true and most wonderful meaning of these writings. All this foregoing philosophy would be idle unless relating to a man's good moral sorry to man's moral good. The true understanding of it gives us a natural religion and expounds our former faith. 
it seems to be a connecting link between earth and heaven, between moral law and material law. Morals are but the revised statutes of religion. Spirituality is religion itself. God about us in our presence, not somewhere else, is a stronger influence than a theory can be. And I'm going to pause there, folks. I, I think that's somewhat of a true statement. God in our presence, not somewhere else, could be a stronger influence than any theoretical uh, presentation of God. Okay, so... Uh, it says morals are but the revised statutes of religion. Spirituality is religion itself. Now, I, I think there's some truth to those statements, and I think some of it's been twisted uh, and kind of bent out of shape because organized religion has become a, a control mechanism of sorts in this world. Uh, so many of the original ideas that were inherent in these original teachings have been lost through that, and... Uh, it's a shame, but you could still get um, some very good um, spiritual teachings and some very good moral teachings and stuff through these various institutions. But many of them have lost sight of this relationship with God, and instead they just present this outward uh, appearance or kind of uh, ritualism towards God. And a lot of this gets tied up in the whole legalistic aspect of things, too, which, uh, you know, if you, you read the New Testament, you know that Christ came to fulfill the law so that we're not necessarily bound to these legalistic-type viewpoints that uh, have been presented to us. So, you know, you, you could see how many of these ideas have been bent and twisted out of shape by the, the religious community, so to say, or the organized religious groups. So this kind of thing, you know, this is one of those blanket statements that the guy makes here that it can't be really, you know, you can't lump everybody together under that category, but uh, it's it's a typical stereotype type thing that we do see going on. And we understand what he's talking about because you do have some of those... Uh, very legalistically minded Christians and stuff out there that are constantly telling you, oh, well, if you don't do this, you're going to go to hell. If you do do this, you're going to hell, uh, and, and this kind of thing. But that does not help anybody find a relationship, a right relationship with God when you're telling them that kind of thing. Because this binds people back to the, the legalistic aspect of the Old Testament, okay? And uh, Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law, not so that we would be still bound to that law in such a constraining way as that, whereas the ends of which are death. He paid the price for us, and it's a free gift. It's the grace of God. And you can't find the grace of God if you're constantly having all this legalism thrown in your face and told that you're bound to this legalism. That's not showing grace. That's showing judgment. And, you know, that that's showing punishment. And you're not going to win somebody over by, you know, threatening to punish them all the time. <laughs> so uh, a lot of these ideas, you know, uh, this is all bound up in the secret society groups as well, not just organized religions. Any of these organized groups have some similar type of thing going on. And uh, these secret society groups are no different. Like they're telling you if uh, the initiate follows our teachings, See, then all of these things will be opened up unto him, and he'll understand through time, but he has to live the life. It's the same kind of thing. It's all bound in legalism, folks. And all of that's been uh, solved already. It's been resolved on the cross. 
uh, by Jesus Christ. That he came to fulfill all that. And it's a free gift. It's the grace of God given to us. We can have better understanding of these things and, you know, not have to be bound by those legalistic mindsets of things. See, we, we could have this freedom. We could be a free man, so to say, as it says here earlier. So, you know, we could have that. Anyway, where did we leave off here? Let's begin back at the reading here. Uh, the true understanding of it gives a natural religion and expounds our former faith. It seems to be a connecting link between earth and heaven. I think we read that part. Sorry. <laughs> we'll keep going, though. Between moral law and material law. Morals are but the revised statutes of religion. Spirituality is religion itself. God about us, in our presence, not somewhere else, is a stronger influence than a theory can be. We must have more than a conjectured God. I agree with that statement. Sorry. <laughs> I had to pause there to say that. I agree with that statement. We need more than a conjectured God. We need a, a personal God, right? We need that relationship, that one-on-one -on -one relationship with God to have a better understanding of who he is and, and trust that he'll lead us in the right directions here. Let's read on, though. Our own intelligence resides somewhere in something. What is this substance? Is it the most subtle, homogeneous, and ultimate element of our bodies? The what? Dissection, says William Hemstreet. In mind is matter, has laid open to our very eyes the secret channels, battery, and paraphernalia of an electric fluid life. Thus, may not the creative intelligence inhere in the universal ether, that is, the image in which we have been created. He goes on to say, the plant needs the actual contact of the sunshine, not to possess in itself a theory about sunshine, nor a belief in sunshine. Man needs a god that can assimilate with him, with his spiritual and physical particles in reality of contact, like the proximity of one we love, not a theory of god, nor a belief in a distant god. All of the foregoing philosophy is in the holy writ. Science matches with it. The men who wrote the scriptures had great unspoiled hearts and brains, while nature itself was roomy and rich. For moral reasoning, long sight, and fine intuitions, they were giants compared with us, encrusted as we are with modern materialism, and upon mere human standards, we should revere their views. They taught, as science does now, that virtue, love, holiness, hope are the hygiene of the soul, and that vice, guilt, despair our disease and death of the soul. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. St. Paul. In the way of righteousness is life, and in the pathway thereof is no death. Proverbs 12:28. When we give our minds earnestly to a study of the mere transitoriness of mortal life and affairs, and yet feel how continuous our hopes and loves are, we then realize the utter incompatibility compatibility of soul with earth. We see that the most substantial human successes and possessions fade, literally and exactly, like the scenes of a camera. All personal grandeur, strength, popularity, business or political success, official station and power, property, family, long sunny plateaus, and even empires pass away like the clouds. 
None of them are abiding here simply because the physiology is not abiding. If the body were everlasting, then the earth and time were eternity, then human aspiration would fit physical life. It requires an eternity to match human loves. Our ambitions are more than commensurate with earth and time. Is there an answer to that demand of every heart for permanence? We walk, act, and build for permanence with scarcely any idea of death, but we are upon quicksand here. Is there one place that is safe and sure? As seeds in the ground have innate qualities drawing them upwards into the air and sunshine, so we have innate qualities drawing us to ethereal realms. This is science. One who can contemplate a flower, a newborn babe, or the devotions in a sick room, and say there is no God has simply no brains. This is morals. When we assume with scientific certainty that mind is linked to a durable vehicle, to a spiritual body, which is ultimate matter, and that it has the boundless ether as its realm of life and enjoyment, then we are ready for delivery from our earthworm condition up into the sunshine, the joy, the content of eternity. Suns and planets perish, but in the final crash they cannot harm a soul, because... That is astral fluid, which penetrates and passes through physical matter as magnetism does. And I'm going to pause there, folks. And the author here is giving you some very interesting ideas as well. And is talking about the spiritual form, okay? A spiritual body, a more durable vehicle that's boundless, right? It's boundless in the realm of ether, in life and enjoyment, it says. So... You know, that being the case, this is a a transcendent type thought. Uh, They're saying here that uh, the soul will survive all of this, even though we will experience physical death here, and everything here in this world passes away, comes and goes through the cycles of time. Our souls transcend that. We have an immortal soul. Uh, because we are created in the image of God. And that being the case, we will transcend here. So it's important to understand uh, that, uh, you know, we need to seek this relationship with God for, first and foremost with a lot of these things. And understand, read the scriptures, understand, um, you know, who God is, who the creator is, what he's all about, these things he's laid forward for us. And Likewise, and concurrently, we need to study nature and see how the natural order here works. Everything functions here perfectly in due time in this creation. The seasons that, that come and go, I mean, how, how do the trees know when to bud and know when to lose their leaves with the seasons, right? All these things are, are tied to different outside forces, Okay, and they understand and perceive and act upon these outside forces. And human beings are no different. We're compelled by these outside forces, too. Uh, But they come from somewhere else. And they're they're not only outside forces, they're also inside forces. It's, It's throughout all of us, and it's a spiritual realm that underlies everything. And, you know, we are, um, you know, completely tied in a sense to that uh, spiritual world even though we exist here on this physical material plane in this material world 
we transcend that. There's portions of us that transcend that. And this stuff, you know, it exists all around us and within us. And uh, we may not perceive it openly here with our five senses in this material world. But these energies are inherent in our reality. And that's a lot of what's been studied by the old philosophers and the alchemists. And uh, they, they were serious students of trying to learn as much as they can about this and how this operates. And this has to do with uh, how manifestation occurs here in our reality and what the nature of consciousness is and, and how God is everywhere and in everything and around everything, but yet separate from everything. See, and that's the, the, the compelling part of all of this. Our, our finite human minds can't conceive of exactly how this whole thing could be. We, we can't understand it because we are finite, but we're also created in the image of God. So he's given us uh, some unprecedented uh, types of responsibility and powers in this place. So that being the case, I mean, we, we could actually sit and observe these different things, make these observations, and really contemplate these, these deep philosophical ideas, whereas the other animals here can't do that, right? They don't have thought on that kind of a level. They don't have that kind of influence in, in the reality like we do. We've been able to alter our reality and change it to make it more convenient for us in, in many ways and, and do various other things. So that being the case, I mean, that's a very special gift we've been given. Uh, the human being has a special place here in creation. And that's something that's kind of been engineered out of us through the years by uh, those people in positions of power. They want us to think that we are just an accidental speck in an infinitesimal universe just floating around in emptiness in the void, and that it came about by accident, and here we are. That's why they give us nonsense like the Big Bang Theory and uh, Darwinian evolution theory, <laughs> which, you know, is all it just... <laughs> uh, don't even get me going on that. There's just so many things that just do not add up with those theories. But uh, at any rate, that's not why we're here. Let, let's continue reading here. Now, right here, let us ask the question, unless man know himself, would he be able to understand all this? And would he be able to attain to the content of eternity? The above quotations from Mr. William Hemstreet show how men of material science look at this grave subject. Let us now look at the spiritual side of the question, and we will quote from Simpnumata, an inspired work now out of print. Under the heading, Freedom of the Enslaved, the author says, As one by one, men cooperating in earnest simplicity with the divine forces of which, by nature, they are the seat, perceive clear imaging upon a purified mentality of the essential union, within them of each sex form and force, and of recovered faculty, throughout the subtler intricacies of surface sense, of enacting that by unity they understand at once the past and future of their fate, what has been done and what remains for them to do, what was the true growth that struggled up through the snows of their outer nature, and how much waits within still to grow forth, and they face life with a sense absolutely new. The vices, not less than the virtues, which characterize with such marked invigoration the present generation, 
are prophetic and initiatory of the rapid and inevitable change that must supervene throughout societary life, both in its lesser and greater forms of family, nationality, and universality. Since the date, comparatively recent, in view of the whole length of the thought history of men, when the incorporation of spiritual potencies began to create reflection on the qualities of the desires which were produced within them, they have, in the rough-and-ready fashion of a relative inexperience, solved the mental problem suggested by the phenomena of the moral-emotional nature, by announcing themselves to be constituted of elements of opposite kinds, generating forces of conflicting tendencies, and for centuries a temporary but necessary purpose has been served by epitomizing the work of all the natures struggling towards true development as the fight of the good within themselves or about them against the evil within themselves or about them against the evil within themselves or about them this view was the only one with which under the past circumstances the battle of life could be faced or sustained either the misdirection and inflammation of force which is called evil because it endangers freedom, harmony, and life, must be suppressed, or the instincts for equable distributing of affectional vigors, which are called good, because they engender justice, peace, and progress, must be largely reinforced from the hidden sources of life before a deeper insight can safely be acquired into the facts of moral force. Gonna pause there for a minute, folks. That sounded like a whole lot of word salad, but essentially what he's saying is the the battle of good and evil happens within each one of us. Okay, we're always fighting against our bad nature. Our good nature versus our bad nature. It happens within us, it happens outside of us. All these things, these forces are real things, okay? And it's all part and parcel of the polarized system that we live in. This world we live in is a very polarized world, and there's reasons for this, and this has to do uh, with fundamental forces in this place like electricity and magnetism. Uh, different different ideas like that. All these ideas all interrelate in a lot of ways, and, and they're somewhat allegorical in a sense, but uh, it all holds true, right? The, the model's the same, regardless of what you uh, call the inputs in the model. But anyway, let's read on. I know that sounded like a lot of gobbledygook because uh, this guy writes in really lengthy, wordy sentences for some reason here, the guy he's quoting right now, but... Anyway, not to get too caught up on that, let's let's read on and see what else we could garner from this. But vice cannot now decrease by weakening of the faculties through which it works, for the whole power of the humanitarian organism may not thus be impaired. The tares must stand and grow for the safety of the field under the eye of the all-wise husbandman, for virtue rises to potencies that will master vice, not by re repulsion of its currents, but by absorption of them into the bosom of its faster stream. And I'm going to pause there for a minute. So it's saying the wheat and the tares need to grow together because the tares shield the wheat, okay? Uh, they, they shield the, the field for safety. And it's only through the all-wise husbandman by his eye that he could separate the wheat from the tares. And so this gives a moral lesson of sorts, and this is an allegorical uh, kind of a concept. We have to have both good and bad in our lives so that uh, we absorb this bad and transmute it into good. Okay, that's the alchemical sense here. This is one of the main alchemical secrets that uh, uh, they, they talk about. This is the kind of the, the spiritual gem of the whole thing. Okay, 
the bad things that happen to us, we need to turn them into good. We, we need to use those for the purpose of doing good, whether it's to help other people through our experience. If we've had a bad experience with something, we could help somebody else going through the same bad experience and maybe get them a little better off with that. You see what this is? This is a, an attitude of service to other human beings, okay? Helping others, in a sense. Now, you know, it's it's not always that way. Sometimes it's to help ourselves, too. If we encounter the same type of bad situation in the future, we learn and we grow. That's what it's about, this place we live. It's a type of school. We're here to learn. We're here to learn and develop spiritually and understand these things, become better people, see? And even the Bible says, you know, we could take what's good, what's meant for bad. The God will take what is meant for bad for us and turn it into something good for us. Uh, so it, this is all part and parcel of what alchemy is about. It's a transmutation of these bad or evil concepts in our lives and turn them to use them for good. Okay, that's what the original intention of the alchemists was. And many of these ideas have been twisted way out of and bent way out of shape uh, through the years through the different secret society groups and people who just longed for worldly power here. Uh, to use this, the, these types of secrets and knowledge against people. But that's ultimately what the original intention was. It's to transmute whatever evil we come across in this world into good. And you can't do that by eliminating the evil, so to say. Uh, and that's why it's kind of a necessary thing here. Because it's, it's the polarity system, like I said again. It's kind of dualistic in nature, right? In its nature. That bad things have to happen. It, it you know there's there's a reason why these things happen and they could benefit us. Look look at the uh, the idea of rain. It rains on the just and the unjust, right? Well, what's the reason for the rain? Well, the rain brings new life, doesn't it? Uh, so you know all of these ideas are inherent in the natural world, in the natural order of things. Uh, death is a, a natural part of life, but it's part of the cycle. And we can't have rebirth or regeneration without death in the concept of the, the cycle. So when, when you look at it from this philosophical standpoint, you have a better understanding. Uh, the whole idea here <coughs> of the alchemists is to transmute the bad things into good and make something good of it. And, and that's the whole point here. And that's when they're talking about uh, changing the imperfect to the perfect. Uh, I don't think that's an accurate description, but y you get the idea of what they mean. Uh, so that's, that's the whole point there. But let, let's read on, and we're almost finished. Let us pause here a moment to say that the author must undoubtedly have understood alchemy in its full and true scope. The conception of life and force, which outgrow from man's present mentality, suggests to him that which his daily life and all the universal phenomena verify that life force is one the direction of its currents however intricate and interpenetrating all referable to the same series of impulsions and that the whole range of facts constituting the suffering and the errors of mankind are but abnormal phenomena of this life force but the ordinary sensitiveness of man to this coursing among his atoms of vitality though it already varies greatly among different individuals, is generally exceedingly superficial. 
His nerves, though markedly more accurate than the nerves of men who lived some hundreds of years ago, are still exceedingly dense and carry to his consciousness no more than a few of the strongest waves of the movement that sustains him. He can recognize the fact that his blood rushes to and fro between surfaces and centers and collects and disperses. He is aware often of shakings and contractings and lassitude in his nerve fluids and is used by modern teaching to attribute these effects to what he calls physical and moral causes. That is, in fact, the drain or ascension of vitality from within himself and the deeper universe with which he has contact within. But the most profoundly and minutely sensitive depths, even in exceptional natures, which the mirror of external consciousness succeeds in reflecting, affords as yet to man only suggestions of immensities of life throughout his being, as the lenses he has learned to manufacture affirm vastness throughout the astral world, which transcend analysis and grasp by present faculties. And I'm going to pause there again. And once again, this author uses a very word sally kind of mix of salady kind of mix of words here, right? It's a lot of word salad he's put together, but essentially what he's saying is uh, that uh, man only has a very vague conception of, uh, in the, the natural or material world here, of all of the, these natural forces at play, okay? Uh, so that's essentially what he says there, and he also talks about uh, how we are all... Um, a type of manifestation of this one ultimate life force, and that would be the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God permeates everything, permeates all of us, and we are just a fractal reflection of a portion of God, in, in a sense, in this place. Uh, so that being the case, um, you know, it, this, this is a very philosophical thought, all right, that uh, we are a microcosm, of the universe and a microcosm of God. And, and this is some of the things they teach in the mystery schools, uh, these, these different ideas. But uh, some people in, within these, these different orders have really twisted and perverted some of these teachings and turned them into something they were never intended to be. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's the bottom line with that. But uh, the point is, uh, the author here is pointing out that there are forces we don't have an understanding of in the modern era because we haven't been taught about these things which influence us in certain ways, right? So that being the case, you know, we could we could learn a little something here from that, but these are the kinds of things the alchemists looked at, okay? Things relating to the spiritual world or, you know, what some would refer to as the astral world or, or, or whatever you want to refer to it as. Things that affect us on that different level, on that spiritual level, that level above uh, what we would call physical consciousness here, uh, above manifestation here. And it leads to uh, different things happening in the material world, right? Uh, so that, that's the whole point here. Um, everything happens first. Um, I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it, but... Uh, Things happen and manifest in the spiritual realm first before they, they could come to fruition here in the material world. That's that's the, the sensation being described here um, through many of these, these different teachings. Okay, that, uh, you know, some of your thought uh, has the capacity to manifest in, in reality here. But first, it has to step down from the mental plane to the astral plane or spiritual plane, and then in, it will fully manifest 
in the physical. All right, and th these are some of the, the teachings that uh, these secret society groups talk about. Things, it's a step down kind of thing, uh, where everything emanates from, from source or God or the creator itself. And, you know, emanates from that same plane on which uh, source comes from, or in a sense, like, I don't know the best way to describe it, but uh, that, that's kind of the best concept that I could think of, and this is how uh, a lot of the secret schools describe it. It's, it's a, a different frequency. It's like uh, an octave above or below the uh, what we would perceive here in the natural order, right? So... This material world we live in, we only see a very small spectrum of the electromagnetic spectrum. We could only experience these things in the three-dimensional reality we live in, okay, with our physical senses. There's only so many things we could detect with that. But this stuff happens beyond our senses, the ability of our senses to detect many of these things, okay? So these are different realms or worlds, so to say. This is how they're described in the ancient mystery schools. But anyway, not to get too far off topic, but uh, this is the kind of thing that it talks about. That there's different energies that influence on these different frequency bands. And those things then step down eventually into material uh, manifestation here. So that, that's essentially what it's talking about. It, it seeks to understand how these things work. And this is kind of the, uh, the crux of how alchemy works. Is First they transmute an object in its spiritual state okay and that's why they're talking about philosophical gold or philosophical silver it's not the same as what we would think of as physical real gold or silver here right those metals these are allegorical ideas it's talking about something philosophical it's talking about something spiritual it's affecting this thing first on a spiritual level so that it can manifest as something better in a material sense here and that's what the whole science of alchemy talks about. And it's a different way of thinking than what we've been taught in modern science. And I'll emphasize the point again, even if you think a lot of this stuff is utter nonsense, you need to understand there's people in positions of power in this world that very much believe this stuff and will act upon it, and the things they do to act upon it will affect us all. So it's important to understand these kinds of ideas and look into them so we can see why do they do the things they do, right? Anyway, let's continue on. Like I said, we're almost done here. At the present stage of human progress, it is unintelligent as it is cowardly to sit down before human nature and affirm its weaknesses and its viciousness and attribute thereunto the necessary prolongation of sufferings on earth. The fatalism of this popular in inference is insult to God and man, and to the whole accomplished work of the multitudinous form animated by the one and eternal force. Men may no longer gape aghast at the fixed depravity of men and things. They know better, if they will let the intuitions of wisdom that are born in them speak, the knowledge of himself that one man may have, if he will take it is sufficient knowledge to be the gathering point of knowledges that he should have of all the other millions. The knowledge that he thinks he has even of one other is not true knowledge, affords no valid leverage for action, will reproduce no good unless experience of his own sensations warrant it. Let him be wise to register and to protect and to enact each 
delicate movement that may thrill the fiber of his deep soul, and he beholds the beginning of wisdom, and only its beginning. He holds then open before himself the first page of the book of nature, according to his reading. Gazing into the realm of his own spontaneity, he requires no outer teaching to make him know that what stirs there among the atoms of elementary consciousness is something that he cannot create, nor hinder, nor command, something that touches him from directions toward which his faculties by instinct strain, seeking in love to worship, but through which they lack capacity to penetrate, something which carries to him vital streams out of some vast inapprehensible and make it makes itself a home within his little sense, impregnating him there with possession of its essence of individuality, and surcharging all the vessels of his inmost being till they outpour. And I'm going to pause there, folks. This guy likes to use long, big sentences and use big, big words to express simple ideas, doesn't he? Uh, essentially, what he's saying here is it doesn't do any good for man to stare aghast at uh, the depravity of men, but understand that uh, there's a moral way that's right, and to seek to live that moral-type lifestyle, okay? Um, <clears throat> also, he says that uh, doing this and uh, trusting your intuition and seeking, seeking right relationship with our creator and seeking uh, through our intuition truth uh, that knowledge will eventually lead us down th this path of the opening of the book of wisdom so to say okay this will lead us to the beginnings of wisdom uh, if we seek to do that which is right that's pretty simple right there isn't it uh, recognize the difference between right and wrong and seek to do what's right and then much knowledge can be opened unto you. Uh, so, you know, that, that's a pretty simple message. But he made it very convoluted there, didn't he? That, that's the writing style of a lot of these guys within these secret society groups and mystery schools. They like to make it sound all big and complicated. And that it's, it's beyond your comprehension, right? When it's not, it's usually something simple. And this is just kind of to puff up their own egos. And, and this is where it escapes from some of the original alchemical teachings. It's not about ego. It's not about, uh, I'm the greatest. I'm a great, you know, alchemist or whatever. That, that's not what it's about. Most alchemists that have been true to uh, the, the true intent of original alchemy, uh, we, we don't even know their names, folks. We don't even know their names. <laughs> that's the whole point like they, they do these good things just for the sake of integrity of doing the good thing because they know it's the right thing to do and they, they help people where and when they can without seeking reward for that and that's where in the difference lies you get these secret society groups they're looking for fame and notoriety and they want to be revered and honored and they have all these grandiose titles for themselves don't they if you actually take a look and you know they're the the grand knight of this or that and uh, like come on come on it, it's hubris and it's egoism and and that's wherein they, they've dropped the ball in a lot of these alchemical teachings although they pass forward some of the the true uh information and some some accurate information and different uh 
truths about the alchemical process and uh, the, the different teachings thereof. They've, they've lost a lot of the original intention, and intent is everything. And it's become the intent of these people to have power and have agency in this world and, you know, have that title and uh, that type of influence. See, it's about power and control for a lot of them, and that's why these secret society groups have really come into uh, the position that they have. This is why they, they formated. Now, um, they'll tell you that the story is, well, the church was uh, full of inquisitors and stuff like that, and anything that they, they you know thought was heresy, they'd burn you at the stake for. So if you were teaching some of these teachings and stuff, uh, they, they would come and lynch you, right? And that's why they had to develop these, these secret uh, languages and, and meet in secret and do all of this stuff. Well, that's not true, because the mystery schools predate the modern church. And that's what they don't tell you. Okay? So the, what had really happened is back in very, very early times, there was a small group of people that decided, you know what, if we keep some of these this information to ourselves, we could use it to control and manipulate other people and set ourselves up in a really nice way. We could be the royalty of this place. We could be the gods of this place. See? And that's exactly what they want. So through from way back then, they've only passed down these secrets to the select few within their orders. Although there's always that outside stream outside of the secret societies that uh, uh, a lot of this information carries forward through. So um, anyway, that's neither here or there. That's a discussion for another day. But the whole point is they've taken some of these true teachings and they've become twisted in many ways and used basically to uh, elevate certain uh, groups of people into positions of power by keeping uh, some of these concepts secret from the masses for purposes of control. So it says here, in, in, to conclude here of this, this preface here, says, let loose the powers of nature in you, man, woman, woman, man, that God may be incarnate. Study the inspired writings of the old masters as herein made clear, and then let the clear voice of simple instruction ring to your adoration as on the Sinai's to which you rise at every hour of the sweet repose when life impours. Hurl right and left and far all claims of systems of thought and life that served of old time, if they now cling upon your skirts and burden your free ascent. One claim uprears itself in holy, holiest lawfulness, inflaming the altar of your hearts, the world's cry for redemption, and lo, the God that meets you in the eternal sanctuary of yourself comes but for that." Lo, on the little field of your frail nature is room for mightiest peace, for the full immensity of reconciliation of God's demands and man's. Room for the meeting in you of the heaven and earth, O little man of men. O ye grand thinkers of ye olden time, as well as of our own age and time, thanks be to the earth and to the soul, which produced you as high things for emulation, as leaven that saves the mass from putrescence. And that was F. Oscar Biberstein, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, August 15th, 1907, writing the preface for this book, talking about alchemy and the alchemists. And uh, we skipped a bunch of stuff there because it's more and more and more of this just ever wordiness that they use to describe very simple ideas. Bottom line is here, folks, 
the alchemists, their intention, their their hidden language that they use, the things they talk about, it's symbology. Okay, it's all done in symbolism and allegory. It's not talking about transmuting lead into gold uh, to make you rich. It's not about transforming base metals into other metals. Uh, so that you could become rich or have some kind of worldly power here. It's talking about something spiritual, okay? It's an allegory for something spiritual. It's philosophical gold. It's transforming your evil nature into good or transforming the evil things or bad things that happen to you in life into something good for the service of others. That's the bottom line of what alchemy was always about, and that's what the original intention was. It's transforming the bad things that happen into good things. That transmutation. It's a spiritual idea. It's about making yourself a better person. It's about learning and growing. It's about observing the natural world, understanding the concepts and precepts that operate the natural world, and understand that those are controlled by the Creator. And it's also about seeking right union with the Creator, seeking a right relationship with the Creator, and learning all you can about the Creator as well. And that's done through uh, looking through different uh, religious-type studies, things that men have known about God through the ages, things they've discovered, how God is reflected in the natural world, how he's reflected in man, and that man is created in God's image, and that we have a special place here in this, this creation, we're not just another one of these animals. We're not a speck of dust flying through an infinitesimal universe at several hundred thousand miles per hour or whatever, spinning endlessly around the sun uh, the way that it's described in the Big Bang Theory. And it all came about by accident and, you know, that kind of thing. We have a very special place and position here because we are created in God's image and therefore we have a type of power in this place. We have a power to subdue nature in a sense, and that's what it tells us in the Bible, or we have a power to work with nature to achieve greater things, and that's what alchemy is all about. It's about achieving greater things by working with nature, whereas the world we live in and the science that we promote right now in our modern era is all about destructive things or working against nature. It's the antithesis of what alchemy is, and that's a lot of the, the reason for the problem in this world. Uh, because we're working against the way the natural order operates, see? And that being the case, that causes backlash, because uh, the the nature will always self-correct, right? We, we see that time and again. I mean, that's been demonstrated time and again. The, the world goes on. Nature will do what nature does all the time. It is true, right? There's no lie found in nature. It will perform what it needs to perform when it needs to perform it. Always on time, always accurately. And uh, the sun will come up tomorrow, right? It, it's always been this way because that's, that's how the natural word, world works. It's set in motion by natural laws that were put in place by the Creator here. And we could learn to understand these natural laws and work with them and learn more about the Creator and, you know, His... Uh, his authority over this place and, you know, all of these things and the way he manifests within and without and all around uh, this, this universe that he created, we could learn about that 
and we could learn to work with that and make this place better and to transmute the bad things into good uh, because that's the bottom line and that's what the alchemist said taught in a nutshell okay now that that's a very generalized kind of statement they do teach some other things as well but that's that's the general crux of it it's all about the transmutation of the soul making you into a better person to um, help make this world a better place it's about service to others and that's what the the original intention was of it but by and large it's been twisted and perverted by different secret society groups in the modern era who have tried to use it to uh, you know kind of seize the reins of power here and maintain power worldly power for themselves and have misused some of the teachings to manipulate the public so you know that that's the bottom line here but we need to have just a better understanding of these things and that's why i thought it would be interesting to just go in and, and read a little bit of this preface to give an overview of you know some of these alchemical concepts and we'll go a little deeper in future broadcasts here but uh you know, I hope this was informative for people. I hope I kept your interest, and uh, I, I really hope that uh, you'll start to maybe explore some of these ideas and, and really think about things. That's that's my whole point of being here, is to get people to slow down a little bit in this hustle and bustle of modern life. Slow down a little. Contemplate these ideas. Contemplate the important stuff, the spiritual ideas, right? What's important? What matters? What's going to last for an eternity? It's it's not the things in this material world, for sure. Uh, so just slow down a little. Think about that. And that should be some food for thought for people tonight. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. Have a good one. Come with me.